Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and I have gotten so many questions from all of you about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and so I wanted to make sure that we didn't break for the holidays without me doing justice to all the incredible questions and pushback and you know arguments that you've all thrown my way. And so I'm going to take this episode to, to go through as many of those as possible. And I want to just say at the outset that I... I'm very careful when, when we started covering this conflict to start with a historical overview in multiple parts because I wanted to make sure that no matter you know what my opinion is, and I said at the outset that I have strong opinions about this, and in some cases it would be controversial to some people, I wanted to make sure that I offered you a service uh, that could help you no matter what your opinions are and, and hopefully give you the tools to you know amend your opinion, shape it, and add detail to it. And so... These are two different types of episodes we do. We do episodes that are like straight up history and all that. And we're going to continue to do episodes like that moving forward on a host of different topics, not just this, because we've heard from you that those are very helpful. And then there are going to be episodes where I offer my straight up opinion. And sometimes I mix opinion and fact. And this is definitely one of those where I mix the opinion and fact. And I just want to say that outright. And, and the reason why I do that is because I do think it's important to not just like look at these issues from a disinterested lens, but to say, all right, like I've worked on this issue. I've thought about it a lot. I care about it a lot. And, you know, why have a podcast if you don't share what you think should happen, right? So that's what I'm doing. Um, but I do know that in the end, it, it can be divisive for some people. Uh, and for some people, it could be reassuring. And you'll you'll hear that in these voicemails. But I also want to say that please send in your voicemails. Um, 321-200-0570. You know, if there's anything I say you want to add to, if you want to challenge it, if there's something else you want to talk about, send those in. Uh, also, you know, we say this at the end of every episode, but it means a lot to us to, to give it, us those five-star reviews wherever you get your podcast because we don't ask you for advertising. You know, we don't um, ask you for money, right? We don't bother you with any of that kind of stuff at the moment. And so the one thing you could do to help and, and pay it forward to us is obviously share it with friends, but also give us that great rating. But first, a, a reminder that we're really going to up our game on the Lost Debate newsletter. So you can go to Substack and subscribe for free there. Uh, earlier this week, I gave a, a list of resources on the conflict, books that I recommend, news sites that I recommend, podcast videos. So you can go there. And in my next post, I'm going to talk about some of my favorite things of 2023, whether it's like my favorite books and novels and movies and apps and products. And, and so I'll probably put that out either tomorrow or next week. So Go there and subscribe. It also is where you get show notes for our episodes. So when we, whatever, you know, we cite something, we try to include the article in the show notes that you know at least what we're pulling from. And you could use comments to actually add to the discussion. So if you comment on an episode, adding additional context, adding additional resources or challenging something we said or saying, you know, maybe that article you wrote actually is now out of date or debunked or something, here's something you need to see. That's like a good form for that. So take advantage of those comments. With all of that said, uh, let's go to our first voicemail. Hi, this is Supriya here calling uh, from London, a long-time listener of Lost Debate. Um, definitely one of my favorite podcasts to listen to every week. And I've really enjoyed uh, Ravi's recent episodes on the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I had a couple of questions for him, actually, on um, just uh, firstly, in terms of his view of the Middle Eastern support for Palestine and for the Palestinian people, whilst they've been pretty vocal, I guess, about um, you know support for the region, we're not seeing as much in terms of acceptance of refugees. Um, and why does he think that is? And do you think that's something that could change in the future? Um, and my second question is more historical, I guess, just in terms of his views or your view even on um, how Hamas has historically hindered the economic development of Gaza and of the people there. You know, we hear a lot of stats around how large a proportion of uh, the Gazan population is made up by um, children or young people under the age of 18 or 19. And I just wonder, outside of everything that is happening today, how has it been historically for this younger population in terms of their ability to get jobs and 
develop careers of any sort or even any sort of natural industry that would have been able to potentially have grown from the region since they were elected in 2006. Um, thank you so much and uh, continue with the good work. Thanks. Thank you, Supriya. The history of you know this Palestinian refugees in the Middle East is is a really tragic one. And, you know, this is, I think, an area that not enough people talk about. There's this uh, Human Rights Watch report that we'll link uh, in the show notes, which basically goes through country by country how Israel's various neighbors and the Palestinian territory's various neighbors treat the Palestinian refugees. We'll start with Egypt. I talked about this in the history, but also a lot in the Hamas episode. You know, Egypt has treated Palestinian refugees rather harshly. Uh, they treated the Gaza Strip rather harshly and restricted trade and the movement of people. And as Isaac Saul pointed out in our episode that we did with him, the rationale that Egypt gives uh, for their treatment of the Palestinians is not much different than the rationale Israel gives. It's largely based on a security rationale. After the 48 war, Egypt had largely been responsible for the Gaza Strip. And then after 67, Israel with the occupation took over more responsibilities, although Egypt had the border and continues to have control over the border. Um, I'll quote from this Human Rights Watch report that talks about what happened after 1978, after Egypt signed a peace treaty with Israel. They said, quote, according to one study, Palestinian students were, until 1978, treated like the Egyptians who received free education in schools, universities, and institutes. But then the government gradually began to impose hard currency tuition fees for Palestinians, treating them as foreigners, and banned Palestinian students from joining colleges of medicine, pharmacy, economics, political science, and journalism. In addition, Presidential decrees in 1978 canceled earlier decisions which treated Palestinians like Egyptians. The Ministry of Human Resources also prohibited the employment of foreigners, including Palestinians in trade, particularly imports and exports, except those who were married to Egyptians for more than five years. The report also talks about restrictions on travel and how some Palestinians who leave the country are barred from re-entering. Uh, so you could read that in that report. And, and those are just the Palestinians who make it into Egypt proper. Obviously, Egypt has been restricting people from moving from the Gaza Strip. Syria also has treated uh, the Palestinian refugees really harshly. Uh, from 1952 to 1954, they declined to resettle 85,000 refugees, even though they were offered funds to pay for the project. Lebanon uh, has treated the Palestinian refugees there incredibly harshly. On the Lebanese front, in, in a 2007 study, Amnesty International denounced what they called, quote, appalling social and economic conditions of Palestinians in Lebanon. And until 2005, Palestinians were forbidden to work in over 70 jobs uh, because they didn't have Lebanese citizenship. And, and this was reduced a couple years later to around 20 jobs that were restricted. And in 2010, Palestinians were granted the same rights to work as any other foreigners in the country. There's a writer and researcher named Mudar Zaran, who's a Jordanian of Palestinian heritage. And he uh, has argued that the media has deliberately ignored the conditions of Palestinians living in refugee camps. And he said, quote, there's a tendency to blame Israel for everything, end quote, that has provided Arab leaders with an excuse to deliberately ignore the plight of the Palestinians in their countries. Jordan is, I would say, the country that has the best record here. Uh, they're the only Arab country to welcome Palestinians and, and grant them full citizenship. Yeah, I've talked about this before, like about half of Jordanians are of Palestinian origin. And they largely try to assimilate, but also the assimilation comes with a, a sense of buying into the Jordanian, you know, what it means to be Jordanian. By 1950, King Abdullah in Jordan was pushing really hard for the Palestinian Arabs and Jordanians to really form one identity. And when he annexed the uh, the West Bank, he forbade the use of the term Palestine in official documents. And so he was trying to assimilate, but he wanted to kind of snuff out the identity of Palestinians. And then if you go back over our history that we've done on this, at various points, King Abdullah, King Hussein, um, they have expelled uh, various Palestinian forces, especially the PLO and Hamas, uh, in response to various attacks and have cleared certain areas of refugee camps in response to violence. So although I would say this is the best case for the, the Palestinian refugees, it's by no means perfect. Kuwait also has, I would say, a rather dark history here. Um, we talked about how because of 
Yasser Arafat's support of Saddam Hussein, Kuwait expelled the uh, Palestinian refugees who were there. Saudi Arabia also has a horrendous uh, record here. There are an estimated 240,000 Palestinians who are living in Saudi Arabia, and they are the only foreign group that cannot benefit from a 2004 law that was passed by Saudi Arabia's Council of Ministers, which entitles all expatriates of all nationalities who resided there for 10 years to apply for citizenship. So they've carved out a special exception for the Palestinians. And there's like a weird rationale that some of these countries give for not giving full citizenship to Palestinians because they say that by giving full citizenship to Palestinians that they this will kind of re- mean that the Palestinians are renouncing their right of return. But I mean, this is a silly argument because you can give that power to the Palestinians. Like you can, you could say, look, like you, you have the option to apply for citizenship. You don't have to, right? It seems like an excuse. Lately, there's been some really horrendous stuff happening in Syria. Obviously, there's this Syrian civil war in which so many have been killed. Uh, and the civil war started in 2011. And by October 2013, there were 235,000 Palestinians who had been displaced within Syria itself and uh, 60,000 who'd fled the country. And by March 2019, UNHCR estimated that 120,000 Palestinian refugees had fled Syria since 2011, primarily to Lebanon and Jordan. And uh, we'll link in the show notes to this article where Jordan was refusing Palestinians fleeing the civil war. And you can you could hear from the Jordanian government spokesperson themselves who they told um, this spokesperson told Al Jazeera when asked why they weren't letting Palestinians in. They said, quote, Jordan is not obligated to pay a political price for the Syrian crisis, end quote. There are also reports that Lebanon had turned away Palestinian refugees as well who were fleeing that crisis. So uh, all of that to say is not a great record of um, Israel's neighbors treating the Palestinians well. Uh, you could do what you want with that information. And it, it's possible, you know, that that was the history that I have available to me. It's, it's possible that some of these countries have loosened up restrictions since like Lebanon, for example. I, I mentioned how they're like allowing more and more job categories to be available to Palestinian refugees. Like this, this stuff, it never really can get better over time. But I think the big picture, unavoidable conclusion is that Palestinian refugees are not treated well in the region, period. We also got a question um, from Serene on Twitter. I replied to her, but I want to just filter her question. She said, listening to part one, there's been a lot of mention of displaced Arabs from what became Israel, but no mention of the hundreds of thousands of Jews that were displaced from Arab countries at the same time. The omission seems to imply that it was okay to do it to Jews, but not Arabs. And, and I replied to her, pointing her to the episode I did with Isaac later on, where I did mention that. And so um, I do want to acknowledge that from uh, 1948 to 1951, as many as 800,000 Jews were expelled from Arab and Muslim nations um, and had to flee. Most of these came from Iraq, Tunisia, Syria, Egypt, Yemen, Algeria, Libya, and Morocco. And most of them were absorbed into the state of Israel. We also had a comment uh, on, I think this was Instagram, uh, that said, um, this is from Mahdi Muhammad, uh, asked, what has Israel ever done for America? Why do they keep calling them their greatest ally? And I think like the way I treat Israel and the way I think about Ukraine is not, hey, what have they done for us uh, type of thing. I, I support the existence of Israel because I think it's the right thing to do. And I support uh, Ukraine's effort to defend itself because I think it's the right thing to do, not necessarily because like in a transactional way, it's it's necessarily good for America. Although I do think, and I'll come around to it, I do think that defending a country like Ukraine, for example, or Israel, I do think that is also in the long-term interest of the country, but that's not my primary reason. My primary reason is, you know, focusing on Israel is, you know, this is a country that and when I say I defend Israel, it doesn't mean I defend settlements. I mean, anybody who's a long-time listener to this knows that it doesn't mean I defend everything they do. But, you know, this is a country that was formed by a persecuted minority that was subject to, you know, what we call one of the most ancient hatreds, right? Uh, and immediately preceding the creation of the state of Israel, uh, we obviously had the Holocaust in which approximately 6 million Jews were murdered by the Nazis. Um, This was about two-thirds of the nine million Jews who lived in Europe before World War II. And right now, 
um, the global Jewish population is estimated to be about 15.2 million. Uh, that number is still less than the Jewish population before the Holocaust, which was estimated to be 16.6 million. So uh, the Holocaust resulted in a loss of about 36% of the world's Jewish population at the time. Uh, and we haven't recovered from that. And so I do think this is a special circumstance. I think that this was a, such an appalling international calamity that that came on the heels of a long history of pogroms and other violence against Jews, both in the region of the Middle East and obviously elsewhere, like Eastern Europe. And so I do think that the argument for a Jewish state where Jews can defend themselves and build their own culture and have their own military to defend themselves, I do, I do think that that is, there's a strong argument for that. Um, at the same time, that doesn't excuse everything that Israel ever does, and it doesn't the existence of Israel and the defense of the existence of Israel doesn't presuppose any specific borders, right? I'm a believer in the two-state solution with a contiguous West Bank, uh, free of uh, most of the settlements, if not all of them, that pockmark the West Bank. Uh, somebody else could believe in the existence of Israel with a totally different conclusion on the land. But my point is, I support Israel and Israel's right to exist not because it's necessarily in the best interest of the U.S., but because it's the right thing to do. Now, I do think supporting democracies, even as imperfect one could argue as Israel's democracy is, or a democracy like the Ukraine, is because I, I think that the U.S. continues to have an interest, as do all Western allies and, and even non-Western democracies like India, have an, a vested interest in ensuring that democracies survive. Uh, and as I've argued before, like, Hamas and their record in the Gaza Strip uh, and their stated aims, they are a explicitly authoritarian fundamentalist government organization and movement. And I think Israel defending itself against Hamas, I view in many ways as a democracy defending itself against a fundamentalist messianic autocracy. Uh, I think it is a, it gets way more complicated and difficult when you talk about what's happening in the West Bank. But we could talk about that probably uh, if somebody has questions about that. Next question. This is from Natalia from Staten Island. Hi, my name is Natalia calling from Staten Island. Um, I have a couple of questions. First of all, thanks, Ravi, so much for that unbiased history, uh, part one. And part two, I think anyone who wants to understand more, I've been forwarding them, you know, the links to the episodes. I think it's a great, like, Cliff Notes version of a lot of the books you recommended that some of us don't have time to read to be fully up to date on all the history. Um, but it got me thinking about the Iron Dome itself. I've seen some videos from friends I have in Israel and then also just on social media and news channels about tons of rockets coming over and being intercepted by the Iron Dome. I was wondering if you could go into detail about what exactly that is and how it works. And it seems like um, almost all of the missiles that shoot over into Israel from Gaza um, are intercepted by the Iron Dome. So if that's the case or if the you know percentage is close to 100, why do Hamas or other terrorists, um, you know, continue to fire them at Israel? I mean, is it just because they have unlimited funds or seemingly unlimited funds? They don't care. They're just trying to scare people. Or is it in the hopes that one in a thousand will break through? Um, because from what I could tell, it seems like a waste of resources if they're always intercepted. Yeah, we also had a question from Yoni who said, was it a mistake to build the Iron Dome? So I'll try to take these two together. So, you know, the, the Iron Dome is an interconnected air defense system. It was first deployed in 2011 to intercept rockets from Gaza. And it's mainly used in southern and central Israeli population centers. And it basically took five years from what we know to develop. So it started in 2006, and the U.S. has been heavily involved in investing in this. It's invested nearly $3 billion in the development and maintenance of it. And it's a three-part uh, system. There's radar detection, so it detects when rockets are heading towards Israel. The second part is it does what's called trajectory calculation. So it says, all right, where is this rocket heading? And then if it's heading towards a population center, then they use these Tamir interceptor rockets to shoot them down. Now, it, the data is a little muddled because if Israel detects that the trajectory is heading towards an area where there are no people, they sometimes let the rockets go. Now, the numbers here are really important. Historically, 
Israel had handled rockets in the hundreds at a time. So the maximum that I could see was that they were handling at various points 470 rockets in a day was the maximum before the October 7th attack. But on October 7th, there were somewhere between 2,200 and 3,000 rockets fired within 20 minutes. Obviously, this is a huge, huge increase in the amount. And uh, some numbers I've seen estimate that at least as of 2014 and 2021, when there have been sort of high-profile incidents of the use of the Iron Dome, Israel uh, had a 90% success rate in intercepting rockets. And it's basically been going up every year. So if you look at earlier success rates, they were in the 80s. Now, if you think about that, 90% seems like a good number, and it is. And and to answer Yoni's point, I think 90%, even though not perfect, is preventing a lot of rockets from hitting Israel. But 10% of thousands is still a lot of rockets to come through. Um, Israel hasn't given all the information on how many of those rockets made it into Israel territory, but that's still a lot. Um, We'll link in the show notes to a detailed article from West Point. Uh, They have a Modern War Institute report that if you really want to geek out on the Iron Dome, that's the best source I've seen on it. It's also worth mentioning that Ukraine had requested use of Iron Dome technology, but Netanyahu refused it. He said that, quote, if that system were to fall in the hands of Iran, millions of Israelis would be left defenseless and imperiled, end quote. So um, I think like Israel guards this technology very closely. We also had a question from Yoni on education. And Yoni, he asked about the education of Palestinians. And he, uh, he provided two resources that we'll share in the show notes. One is a 1961 Atlantic article, which is a really fascinating read you know, there's definitely like some, I I think what the term would be called Orientalism in that article. Like it's written from a very 1961 perspective. Uh, But this is a writer who went to UN camps in the 1960s to just detail, among other things, what the education system was like in the camps. And the article says, quote, the children are taught hate, the Garden of Eden stolen from them by murderers. Their duty is to live for uh, return and revenge. And it it recounts this uh, camp leader who's teaching kids, quote, Jews are criminals, they're murderers, they're the worst criminals in the whole world. And uh, he said, uh, have you ever heard of Hitler? And then bang the table, it says Hitler was far better than Jews. And a student asks, or the, the reporter go, responds saying he was a far better murderer. He killed 6 million Jews as a start. And then the um, camp counselor says back, oh, that's exaggerated. He did not. And... Uh, he says that he only killed the old ones, the weak ones, to make others migrate to Palestine. And quote, you could read it. It's really weird and offensive, obviously. Yoni also offered an article from Foreign Policy magazine from 2021 that talks about the current state of education. This is a quote from Foreign Policy magazine. Quote, during the pandemic, UNRWA published its own learning materials online to support at-home schooling. A study that of that content by the Institute for Monitoring Peace and Cultural Tolerance in Education found the curriculum to be filled with violent language and glorification of militants. The sixth grade grammar lesson, for example, includes the phrase, quote, we shall defend the motherland with blood, end quote. An eighth grade lesson teaches students that, quote, jihad is one of the doors to paradise, and quote. Palestinians have become an example of sacrifice, end quote. Um, there's tons of materials you could find on this. Uh, this is, you know, foreign policy is not exaggerating here. Like, these are beyond anecdotes. There's a systematic effort in both the West Bank and Gaza, where it's even more extreme under Hamas, to uh, teach kids that you know self-sacrifice and suicide bombings and jihad and killing Israelis and in some cases killing Jews is acceptable. That seems beyond dispute. You could read those uh, resources in our show notes. Natalia had a second part of her question, um, uh, who we just heard from in Staten Island. Uh, let's go to that question. Another question I had was um, more in regards to Hamas itself, and I know you just uh, dropped another episode regarding Hamas that I didn't get to listen to yet, so apologize if you already addressed this, but I was wondering if we know who the leaders are. I've seen them on TV, you know, claiming um, that what they did on October 7th is a celebration and they will continue to, um, you know, try to kill as many Jews as they can and things like that. So if they're admitting to these murders and they're a known terrorist organization, internationally recognized as a terrorist organization, What prevents us from arresting these people and trying them? Is it because we don't know exactly where they are? I mean, I've also seen Instagram accounts post that, 
uh, some of the leaders who live in Qatar are billionaires and there's pictures of their houses and their yachts and everything. So, I mean, it seems like there must be some simple answer that I'm not seeing because it just seems bizarre to me to see these people, you know, see their face clear as day on the news saying that they're happy about what they've done and that they're the leaders of these organizations and they're just living free and living the life of an extravagant billionaire. Um, yeah, I really appreciate everything you're doing to keep us more informed about what's going on and try and be as unbiased as possible. Thank you. So on the question of killing Hamas leaders, it's complicated because some of their host countries like Qatar uh, won't let Israel kill those leaders. And and if you remember from the history, there have been some botched attempts to kill Hamas leaders and in certain cases, PLO leaders in other countries that have caused major diplomatic issues. Like if you remember, there was the in, the incident where they tried to kill a Hamas leader in Jordan and failed. And then they had to release Sheikh Yassin, who's the head of Hamas. So like these can have huge repercussions. There is a really interesting read, a book called Rise and Kill First, which is a, I mean, the, the name of this book is a little bit incendiary, but it's got a meaning that I think is a little bit different than it seems on the surface. But if you've ever read Legacy of Ashes, uh, it's a book about the CIA and the sort of CIA's history of botched assassinations and clandestine operations. That that book is really good. This is the equivalent of the Israeli version of it. It basically goes through, among other things, the history of the Mossad and Shin Bet and some of these elite IDF units. And it goes through just one incident after another of the successes and catastrophic failures of targeted assassinations abroad. And what you'll find is there are certain like examples where you know, like the famous Ehud Barak incident where he dressed up like a woman and traveled with some IDF soldiers into Lebanon to kill PLO leaders. But then you have uh, incidents like one that happened, I believe, in Norway that were Israeli Mossad um, agents or either Mossad or IDF agents killed a innocent person and um, wound up going on trial in Norway. So it's like you you have to be really careful when you infringe on the sovereignty of another country and you also like their the ethics of targeted assassinations are fraught. So, like the U.S. itself has had a really extensive back and forth internally about when it's acceptable to do targeted assassinations. And so I think that's you know it's just complicated. And one of the periods in which Israel got really aggressive was after Munich. Uh, they did a lot of targeted assassinations, had a lot of early success, but then as a lot of people, Ehud Brock among them have suggested uh, some of these intelligence services got overconfident and made some huge mistakes that that really infringed um, and slowed down on those types of targeted killings in the years ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict and how it relates to American politics in my mind. And I want you to explain, just maybe talk about why I shouldn't be as terrified as I'm working myself up to be right now. Because as far as I'm concerned, the Israel... Uh, Palestine situation is the logical end place of where American politics is right now as society continues to get more violent. The way Ravi spoke about Hamas and how their agenda is not compatible with liberal democracy seems eerily similar to the far right in America, a religious fundamentalist organization. The farthest right in America does not believe in the separation of church and state. Members of Congress have said as much. They've already ended Roe, and a lot of the far right want to outright ban abortion and that's the definition of taking women's rights away. There are tons of anti-trans and gay laws coming out every day. Look at Florida and what the new speaker supports. They're controlling education with book bans and PragerU videos and the likes. Trump wants to give drug dealers a death penalty, and I might be biased, but I'm sure if someone, if an interview asked him, do you think thieves should get their fingers or hands cut off, I'd imagine he'd say yes, because he's just that kind of guy. That's the vibe I get from him. Um, the farthest right of the party are literal Nazis and do not believe in the Holocaust. They sabotage bills all the time. Look at the speaker mess and the fact we can barely send, uh, fund the government. They refuse to compromise with Democrats. How is that any different than Hamas or Palestine sabotaging any types of peace talks? We were four security guards, two phone calls away from Mike Pence being hung and Nancy Pelosi being murdered on January 6th. 
If they were able to succeed and murder our elected officials, that would have been the same as the Hamas attack on Israel. The only difference is I don't think America would start carpet bombing cities to quote unquote get rid of the far right groups that plague our country, which is another reason any action other than diplomacy by Israel is wrong and makes them just as bad as Hamas in any of their actions. So as you lay out why Hamas is bad, and I think about how similar their agenda is to the far right in America, I sit here thankful more violence hasn't struck us. But I'm also terrified at what the logical conclusion of what our current political climate looks to be. Um, here's the hope, and I'm wrong, guys. I, sorry I went on that rant. I have a good show, and I love the show. Thanks. Bye. So um, thank you for that, that question. You know, I, I hesitate to, to make too much of a comparison between the two but your question does prompt me to to reignite a question I've asked, and we, we I've got some questions later on from people who disagree with me on this that I'll that I'll answer in a bit. But this is one of the reasons why I've been puzzled by the response of certain segments of the left, right? Like not all of the left, obviously, a lot of you the listeners are left wing and have a diversity of views on this. But there has been a, a certain confusion, I think, amongst people on the left about the fact that I do think that Israel and fighting Hamas is fighting a right-wing organization. And that's one of the, if I were trying to make inroads into people who I would want to convince of at least my position on the matter, I would want to start with a imperfect liberal democracy fighting against a right-wing autocracy. And that's kind of the frame uh, that I would use. And the fact that generally speaking in the United States, we oppose religious fundamentalism. And although like I don't go as far as this this caller does in, in equating the two, I do think that like the idea of whatever your religion is, if you take a fundamentalist exclusionary view that infringes on the rights of people around you who don't believe the same thing you do, that liberals should be against that. And there's no fair reading of Hamas that would suggest anything otherwise. Right. And so to me that is that should be a starting point of a conversation. And and yes, that conversation can extend to Israel and how it treats different religions within its country, like which is, you know, from what I understand, and actually this was one of the, the topics I was meant to go to Israel to study, right, which is what is the status of religious and political minorities in Israel. So I was hoping to make some inroads in my understanding of Israel in this respect. But my understanding is that in Israel, you are free to practice whatever religion you believe in. Now, obviously, like if you're an Arab Muslim Israeli, uh, you aren't treated the same as a uh, Jewish Israeli in every respect. Uh, and I imagine it could be true of the Christians as well and other religious minorities, but you unquestionably aren't prevented from exercising um, your freedom of religion in Israel. And that's a starting point, right? Like we can, we can have two conversations. One is Hamas being an extreme right-wing fundamentalist organization and at the very fringes of anything like any ideology that we come across and something that we should oppose outright. And then you have Israel, which is like a country that we can, if to the extent we're engaging in the conversation, can perfect and improve its uh, pluralism. Just like India, for example, where I just came from, where I, I firmly believe that India uh, although a democracy is incredibly imperfect and, and heading in a bad direction and, and has a lot of room to grow to perfect its treatment of or improve its treatment of religious minorities. All right, let's go to the next question. Hi, Ricky. Hey, Robbie. Love the piece on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, historical conflict there. In that regard, I thought uh, you guys might find this interesting. I tried to get an unbiased summary about this issue from the various AIs, the language models that exist, BARD, ChatGPT, uh, Microsoft, Bing, which uses GPT-4. None of them wanted to touch this issue. They, you know, basically, well, Bing stopped chatting and uh, BARD. You know, basically said, why would I know anything about this? Um, just found it interesting. Thought you guys might want to play around with it. Uh, love the show. Excellent work. Keep doing what you do. So this is a great question. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but other other than to say is like, I've played around on chat GPT as well on, as it relates to this conflict, and it's laughably unhelpful. Uh, and I would say inaccurate in many ways. And so 
like a good example of is like when I, some of what I took from earlier on the, the refugee stuff I took from Wikipedia. I took like a combination of sources like Wikipedia, Ian Black's summary of the treatment of refugees, Benny Morris, the Human Rights Watch report. And I put it into ChatGPT just to say, hey, can you help me organize these into bullet points for a, a podcast? Which I've tried to do with GPT a lot. And honestly, it just almost never works. I have to organize myself. Like it's still not a function that GPT is really that good at. But I also said, hey, um, feel free to fact check this as well. And what GPT wrote me back was really interesting. They said, you know, basically there's nothing factually inaccurate about what you said, but here's how I would phrase it. And what they phrased, they turned very specific points into generalities saying, hey, it's really complicated. This is very complicated. That's very complicated. But they didn't, they didn't say what the complexity was, right? Like what they could have said was, hey, actually, the reason why Syria doesn't accept refugees, their stated reason is because this could complicate the right of return narrative. And that would have been like an, an interesting way to add a level of understanding to the complication, which I, I, I think I addressed earlier. But they just kind of defaulted to platitudes. And my sense is there's some kind of decision made by the higher ups in, in and I don't obviously have any information to know this, but there are decisions made not to really stir the pot and create incidences through where people are asking GPT for things that come out pointed and that piss off, you know, one side of the debate or the other. But I would say I agree it's super unhelpful. And actually, there's even worse than that. I use the Dolly plugin to try to generate an image for the newsletter that we have. And the first day I used it, it allowed us to use like Israeli-Palestinian flags and stuff like that. So I generated an image using that. And then the next day I tried to do it, it actually said that that violates their content policy uh, because it's incendiary. And I'm like, well, using a flag of a country is incendiary. That's really weird. So I agree. All right, next question. Hey, Robbie. Um, I just wanted to call in and say I'm very impressed by the um, the Israel-Palestine episodes that you have uh, recorded at this point. Um, I just wanted to say that I have been very uh, appalled at my my own circle of friends who are on the left of being pretty silent in their terms of posting things on Instagram about the essentially pogrom that happened in Dagestan and, uh, you know, after posting a lot of stuff about uh, Palestine. So I just wanted to say that um, it's very confusing to me. Uh, keep up the good work. Thanks for what you do. So uh, we're going to put some sources in our show notes about this, but essentially in, in late October of this year, so just a few weeks ago, there was a, an anti-Semitic uh, riot in an airport uh, in Dagestan, which is a region of Russia, when a flight from Tel Aviv arrived and a mob had set up a checkpoint searching for Jewish and Israeli passengers and hundreds stormed the airport shouting anti-Semitic slogans. And they were searching for Jews at the airport and kind of storming the plane. Uh, and they chased a bus carrying passengers, throwing stones. And, the, and by uh, some accounts, the police were initially reluctant to act. Eventually, a few rioters were arrested, but you know, it doesn't seem like anything proportions to the amount of people involved in this. And it was, this was uh, in response to, I think, some misinformation spread on social media, particularly Telegram, about Jews arriving and quote unquote taking land, right? It's just like a really ugly, ugly incident. And there's a whole sect of, of Jews that uh, I think they're called the mountain Jews in that area with uh, uh, roots to Persia. In that region, and it's a it's a really fascinating and really sad story. But so thank you for for pointing us in that direction, and and we'll we'll link to some articles about it if anybody wants to read about it. Let's go to our next listener. Hi, Ravi and Ricky. Uh, Ravi, I am a pediatrician and a Jew um, in Michigan, uh, and a um, proud Democrat. And I have never called into any show, but I have listened to. Um, majority 54 for quite a while and had not listened uh, to the lost debate before, but started listening about Israel. And I just listened to the episode from October 31st and I've listened to education. And I just wanted to say thank you. I um, am like sitting in my house uh, crying right now just to hear someone who was not Jewish articulate how hard it's been. And I hate to even talk about how hard it's been 
in light of the thousands of people who are dying because it's really not about me as an American Jew, but uh, it has been really, really hard as someone who did stand up against the Muslim ban and all the other things that you talk about and who feels pretty much the exact same way about Israel and Netanyahu as you articulated. So anyways, I have never called a show like this before, um, and I really can't even believe I'm doing it, but I'm just putting it out into the void uh, that I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing and the education you're providing and just the support. Thank you so much. Well, uh, thank you for that comment. And this is something that I think in the history that I did it's very hard to step outside of the history and talk about the emotions of this conflict and the present day humanity, because it can feel didactic and, and a little bit unemotional, right? And in part, that that is a choice I make because I know that in those early episodes, I just wanted to make sure that no matter where people are coming from on the issue, we're kind of all operating from the same factual base. But then, obviously, in in subsequent episodes, I've tried to just share not just my logical take on it or, or my attempt at a logical take. Some of you will get to think it might be illogical. But I also want to connect on an emotional level. And you could see sometimes I might raise my voice and get a little passionate about it and say some things that might be a little bit more flip than they would come across in the history. And I kind of operate at two levels. Like, if you're listening to this podcast one thing we want to make sure we continue to do are those sort of didactic, almost scientific takes on history. And we're going to do more and more and more of those. And we'll make sure that those are flagged as such. But then we also do commentary and we want to take part in the debate about what should happen. And in that respect, I firmly believe that what this listener is identifying is real in the lives of, I would say, nearly, if not every single Jew I've met has been more scared uh, and has felt more alone since October 7th than they have in their entire lifetimes. Isaac talked about it quite eloquently, but I've had so many people pull me aside and talk about this. And 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 one thing I heard is that, and it was somebody who implored me to do this after the, the history, is to say, don't just treat it like a historical question and a geopolitical question, but a human question, right? And I'm trying to do that while balancing the real desire to convey the true complexity of the matter. And so I'm, I'm glad I at least made one of you happy with that. Um, so I really appreciate that. Uh, now, somebody who wasn't happy, uh, <laughs> or at least uh, one or two, let's go to some of those folks, because this is just as important as, as those of you who are satisfied with my take. Uh, let's go to this first voicemail. Hi, your episode released today is the first one I've ever heard where I could not finish it. It was just so upsetting. I've always really enjoyed your podcast for being very balanced and really talking to experts and trying to find people who can really articulate ideas. But this idea that the left has lost its mind and it's just an American phenomenon, I don't understand how you can say that given the types of resolutions that have been coming out of the UN right now. It just seems like, hey, we're not the only ones who feel like it's more complicated than just people misdescribing identity on foreign politics. So yeah, I don't know, man. I couldn't finish that episode. It just seemed really not balanced, not really a debate, not the whole MO of the show. I'm just really disappointed. Anyway, bye. All right. I appreciate the feedback. And I think there are a couple of things. Um, one is, and, I, and I'm not exactly sure what you're pulling from, but when when Yasha was making his argument in the last episode, he wasn't speaking specifically about America. And if he suggested that, or if I suggested that, then then that wasn't intentional. Uh, although we do talk about America, right? But I think like in saying like the American left, yada, yada, we're, to be clear, we're not just saying that this is a problem only here. And if you go back to Yasha's book, but also the conversation we had Yasha about the Identity Trap book, he traces the roots of what he calls this identity thesis to thinkers that are outside of the U.S. as well, like Foucault and also anti-colonial thinkers like Edward Said, right? And so he he talks about people like this as an international conversation. And I certainly think that what he points out, Yasha, and, and, and where I agree with him in large part is that there is so, there are certain elements of the left. And it's, it's, it's always important to be careful in how we talk about like, what is the left, right? Like so many of you who listen to this might be on the left, but you have a diversity of viewpoints. But 
he tried to talk about a certain what he called illiberal left uh, in, in that interview that we did earlier this week. And he tried to distinguish it from what he, he felt was the liberal left. And those are his terms, right? But he tried to distinguish those two. Uh, and he spoke to the motivations of each saying that the latter, meaning the liberal left, their problem is sometimes they fail to step outside of their context to evaluate actors like Hamas in their context. Because uh, Americans, you know, in contrast to what um, one of our listeners said earlier, I would say that like Americans don't really encounter actors like Hamas on a daily basis. So they sometimes fail to to see them for what they are uh, and the threat that they pose. That was the point I, I heard him making. And I did hear him. And in his book, he certainly does like goes through great pains and hundreds of pages to kind of distinguish between different forces, not only just the liberal and illiberal left, but he even breaks down what he would call the illiberal left into many, many different categories and kind of synthesizes them together and say, these are kind of coming to a head now and they're not all playing out in exactly the same way, but there are certain patterns to the way people are talking about this. Now, I agree that this is complex, uh, though the UN is a tough standard here. And I want to talk about the UN because the UN is where I worked when I started to change my views a little bit on this. Because I worked in college, I was a, a, the first protest I showed up to in college was during the Second Intifada, and I was pro Palestinian protest. Uh, and that was kind of this school of thought I came out of in college, like Chomsky and all of that. And, and I do think a lot of those works and people, offer a lot to the discussion, and it's why I drew from a lot of them in our history. But the UN is really challenging here, and something I noticed then and has been true ever since and well before when I was there is that the UN has a particular obsession with Israel, right? So the UN General Assembly passed more resolutions critical of Israel than against all other nations combined in 2022. Um, they approved 15 anti-Israeli resolutions in 2022 versus 13 criticizing all other countries. Russia was the focus of six that year. That was the year of the invasion of Ukraine. Um, North Korea, Afghanistan, Myanmar, Syria, Iran, and the U.S. were hit with one resolution each. Since 2015, the General Assembly has adopted 140 resolutions criticizing Israel and uh, over the same period, it's passed 68 resolutions against all other countries. Let me say that again, 140 versus 68. And those numbers are from right before this conflict. And so you could add to the amount of anti-Israel or critical um, resolutions against Israel that we have. And that's not just true of the General Assembly. So the UN Human Rights Council, since its founding in 2006, has passed more resolutions condemning Israel than against Iran, Syria, North Korea, China, Cuba, and Venezuela combined. This happens as there's been a civil war in Syria that's killed at least 500,000 people, which is at least three times the amount of people who've died in the Arab-Israeli conflict, period, since 1860. So I tend to look at that and say, something is wrong here. And I'm not the only one. Uh, even Ban Ki-moon acknowledged in August 2013, he says, quote, and Ban Ki-moon, for those who don't know, was the Secretary General of the United Nations at the time. He said, quote, unfortunately, because of the conflict, Israel has been weighed down by criticism and suffered from bias and sometimes even discrimination. He, he pointed out discrimination in the UN and said it's an unfortunate situation. Uh, and so, you know, Ban Ki-moon, I think, recognized it. I recognized it while I was there. It was actually enough for me to see the conflict through a different lens. And I started to see the double standards that were being applied to Israel and and started to ask myself, what's motivating that? Uh, and it, it both made me incredibly suspicious of the UN as a body on this, but also it, it, it helps frame moments like this when there's just like a ton of focus on Israel and, a, and a, I would say standards being applied to it that are being applied to nobody else. And, and I think that's a problem and I think something that needs to be addressed. Uh, let's go to another uh, listener who did not love what I had to say. Hi, my name is Joe Harmon. I'm calling from Los Angeles, California, and I'm calling about your recent episode about the supposed roots of left-wing anti-Israel sentiment. Um, I guess if you're just going to indulge in this um, really brain-dead binary way of looking at the world where there's this nameless everybody but also nobody at the same time, left that can be spoken out against and have their arguments dismissed because somebody says that 
they can claim to read their minds and um, know that they're only saying this to uh, saying things to get invited to parties. Like I said, fine, that's your choice. However, I hope we can look forward to an episode where you call out the right for things like that, that their elected leaders have proposed, like deporting all Palestinians, or from very uh, prominent people like venture capitalist leaders who say all Palestinians should be sterilized. Again, I won't hold my breath, but something to look forward to, I guess. Uh, if Also, though, if Robbie knows about people who are saying these horrible things and they're in public life and he's not naming them, it's just cowardice. Um, I suppose they deserve credit for bringing up Hillary Clinton, the last nominee of the Democratic Party, and talking about how she basically agrees with you. But again, we need a left that's everyone and no one to uh, throw your arguments against or else maybe you'd have to start reasoning and things like that. Uh like your show a lot. Just so wish I did not have to roll my eyes through it so many times. All right. So a couple of things. One is I, I, I definitely don't claim to read people's minds. And whenever possible, including in that episode, I, I try to use actual text of what people are saying, including in that case, I, I cited the Students for Justice of Palestine and, and some reporters and what they said, and uh, also referred to student statements, uh, student organizations, like the example of the NYU students, uh, Rhina Workman, who got in trouble for posting on the newsletter, quote, this week I want to express first and foremost my unwavering and absolute solidarity with Palestinians in their resistance against oppression towards liberation and self-determination. Israel bears full responsibility for this tremendous loss of life. Um, I don't want to go through, you know, he kind of asks me to name them, name them. And I think like we have throughout all these episodes named, and I would say not just named issues on the left in the United States and why those are problematic, but also I would say have named going back to the 1800s specific acts of violence that have been perpetrated by critics of Israel and its opponents and by Israel itself and laid those out very clearly and also have quoted Israeli and Palestinian officials in all of their glory and infamy. And I'll point you to one example of that, which is I quoted Golda Meir when she was prime minister saying that there's no such thing as Palestinians, right? So I, I would hope our listeners would know I'm not hiding anything uh, here in terms of like anything terrible said in the name of Israel. And I can go through here a laundry list of examples of prominent and not so prominent people saying things that justify the uh, attacks on Israel on October 7th. And I'll point you to an article that'll be in our show notes from Noah Smith that was written on October 10th. So this is before Israel did the Gaza campaign, right? And he goes through a litany of things that were said and done, sometimes by individuals, sometimes by large groups of people that I think nobody listening to this podcast probably would stand behind. And I think different people can have different interpretations about how widespread that is. And I tend to spend a lot of time on it. And this gets to, I think, one of what our, some of our other listeners, one of our other listeners had said, which is like, why I spend so much time on the left wing and not on the right? I think it's in part because I come from the left. I run, I ran Arena, I worked on the Obama campaign. Um, and although like any listener's podcast knows I'm not a perfect vessel for the left, I have more influence over that conversation, both through this podcast and Majority 54 and my relationship with democratic organizations through Arena is that I have way more persuasive power over that group of people than I do the right wing. Um, but I do take seriously the right and its anti-Semitism. Um, we've certainly talked about it on this podcast. And I also take seriously Islamophobia. I did a whole episode on Islamophobia that we posted to Majority 54, uh, one of our other podcasts that my my co-host Jason Kander helped put together that we put we put out two weeks ago. But I agree that this guy, uh, and, and the reason why we didn't mention this guy, Kenneth Ballenegger, who's the guy who was fired, from his VC firm was that it just happened. Like, I think it just happened in the past two or three days. Um, this guy was fired uh, because he posted the following on X. He said, after the war, Israel should handle Gaza like China handles Xinjiang. Full surveillance state, re-education camps, sterilizations is warranted and the only way to pacify the jihadi population, end quote. This guy was fired, and I think rightly so. And I think I was having a conversation about the Yasha episode with a friend of mine who is like agreed with Yasha that 
companies shouldn't discriminate on, based on viewpoints. But examples like this are why I'm not exactly with Yasha yet. Because if that guy were my employee, I would fire him. And I would want to fire him. And I actually think the First Amendment protects me uh, and my ability to fire people who hold abhorrent views like that. So if you want a ton of examples of what I'm referring to and drawing from when I say there are problems on the left uh, here, then read Noah Smith's piece. And that I, I like that piece because it is before Israel did anything in reaction to October 7th, before it invaded Gaza and, and did its siege campaign, before it you know, any of the controversies around the hospitals and any of that happened. This was a reaction to the October 7th incident and the history that preceded it. And I think it's really instructive uh, when people are trying to understand, well, why do I have my backup about certain things like this? Uh, all right. Lisa Alderson uh, wrote on Twitter, uh, would love to see you do an episode on the pre-1948 history of Palestine. Curious about the borders of Palestine before the Brits and the Ottomans. Lisa, uh, I will consider doing a full episode of it, but I'll give you a little bit here. So Palestine, which is Philistine in Arabic, owes its name to the Romans. The area was conquered by Arab Muslims in the 7th century, and, and obviously the Jews had been there long before that, in pre-Roman times. Uh, in the 16th century, the area was conquered by the Ottomans, uh, and the population of the late 19th century, Palestine was about 85% Muslim and 10% Christian, and most of these folks were peasant farmers. Uh, most of the Palestinian Arabs were loyal to the Ottoman state for most of that period, uh, and they even participated in elections to parliament in Istanbul, and they sent their kids to government schools. The area that is current Israel and Palestine was broken into three different administrative states uh, during sort of the operative time of the Ottoman Empire, but this shifted over time. Like there were, the, the borders were never neatly what Israel or Palestinian territories are now. Sometimes they include wider Jordan, et cetera, and, and other areas like Egypt. In 1908, there was the Young Turk Revolution, and this this combined with the arrival of Jews in larger numbers, I think, shifted the the identity and the stance of a lot of the. Arabs who are living in what is uh, today considered Palestine and the Palestinian territories, because the young Turks insisted that uh, the inhabitants of the area started use Turkish in their schools and courts, etc. And certain writers have written that that, combined with the arrival of the first Aliyah of Jews, led to a sort of huge growth and some would say birth of a, a certain kind of Arab nationalism. And I'll quote you the sort of operative language here. This is from Ian Smith, who wrote the book, uh, or Ian Black, sorry, who wrote the book that I've cited before, um, Enemies and Neighbors, which I think is one of the best books on this. And I'm going to read you this, this extended excerpt from this book that kind of describes what was going on. He said, locally, Palestine was perceived simply as part of Bilad al-Sham, greater Syria, roughly today's Syria, Lebanon, and the Levant. In classical times, it had been known as Jun Philistine, a military district, but it had not been a separate administrative unit since Sultan Salim I had defeated the Mamluk rulers in, of Syria and Egypt in 1517. It was divided into uh, Sanjaks, districts ruled variously from provinces of Damascus or Beirut. In 1872, Jerusalem was given a higher status and governed directly from the imperial capital, Istanbul. In the late Ottoman period, Jerusalem together with the Sanjaks of Nablus and uh, Acre, formed the regions that was commonly referred to as Southern Syria or Palestine. The principal Christian denomination treated Palestine as a distinct entity. In Arabic, it was often referred to as Alard al-Muqadasa, uh, the Holy Land, the phrase used in the Quran. The Hebrew Eretz Hakodesh, uh, a reminder that my pronunciations are just abysmal because I don't speak Hebrew or Arabic. Um, this, uh, this Hebrew Eretz Hakodesh had precisely the same meaning. Um, Palestine was bordered in the east by the Jordan and the Dead Sea in the west by the Mediterranean and after a British-Ottoman agreement in 1906 by a marked frontier with Egypt. On the eve of the First World War, the primary identity of the majority uh, Arabic-speaking Muslim population was still local, family names and dialect often revealing geographic origins as well as Palestinian, though not in a manner that demanded independ independence from the Sultan. Arabism, in the sense of an Arab nation united by a common language, was the outlook of a small elite which initially advocated autonomy within the Ottoman Empire. Christians were influenced by notions of nationalism and patriotism that were disseminated in missionary schools. The small Jewish population was largely religious. The threat posed by the Zionist movement, which had been growing slowly since its first settlements were founded in the 1880s, was another factor promoting a sense of distinct Palestinian identity, end quote. You could read the whole book to get more context, but I think that 
those two paragraphs, I think, give you a lot, Lisa, to answer your questions. We've gotten a lot of activity, I'll be charitable to say, on uh, Instagram and TikTok about a clip we posted where I talked about my the point I made about uh, everybody lives on, on land that was stolen by somebody at some point. I made some point equivalent to that. I talked about Hawaii and the U.S. annexation of Hawaii and the Native Americans, et cetera. Essentially, actually, interestingly, Rashid Khalidi made a similar point. Obviously, he and I have disagreements on the ultimate question, but uh, he made a similar point at one point. And Mr. Torrance on Instagram wrote, uh, in response to this video that I posted, he said, I'm pretty sure there are people talking about giving Hawaii back to the indigenous. And then Callie Hudson says, I'm sure he he's meaning that nobody is taking to the streets in large protests defending all of this. That's the comparison. No one's denying that people are speaking out, just not in, in large masses as they are to justify the current situation. And then the urban gardener talks about 20% of the Arab Muslim population in Israel. Look, it's not just about protests. What I'm, what I'm saying and what Khalidi said is that we, of course, would not justify anybody, no matter how like correct their claim to land is, like the Native Americans, for instance, or the Hawaiians. We wouldn't accept anybody in that movement or their allies killing innocent civilians, babies, grandmothers uh, in the name of that claim. I would go a step further to say that almost everybody is on, quote unquote, stolen land. And so the complicated and important question we have to ask is, well, what do you do about land that's stolen? And when do you start the clock, right? Like, you know, I've, I've lived in Manhattan, I live in Brooklyn, this, this land was, uh, at various points, certainly controlled by uh, native populations like the Algonquins, right? There's not a serious effort to give that land back to the Algonquins. And if descendants of the Algonquins came over here and tried to kill me, there's not many people in my life who would think that's a sensible uh, an acceptable thing to happen. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, that's, that's basically my point on that. So on TikTok, uh, young cuck, interesting name says these dorks say, give the land back to the indigenous people. But when you tell them Jews are the indigenous people, it doesn't count anti-Semitism. Um, and then, uh, Jamal Fahm writes back saying Israelis aren't indigenous people though. Uh, and then Young Cuck writes back, Jews have inhabited that land since before the birth of Christ until Rome exiled them and changed the name to Palestine decolonization. Numerous countries have changed their names after the fall of empires like Ottoman or USSR. The name change, but they're all indigenous. Um, look, um, I'm sort of with Young Cuck here, which is a sentence I never thought I would say. The, I, I don't agree with the, the name change with Palestine. I'm not that interested in that conversation, but like the... The question of whether Jews are indigenous, I think, is un beyond dispute. Like the Jews have been there for a long, long time. And so this is why I think the decolonization narrative, as we've talked about on a few podcasts now, is, is not right. Okay, I think that's it for now. I mean, uh, there was one other question I think Supriya from London had around the economic plight of the Palestinians. And uh, I'll point her in the direction of, uh, in Gaza particularly, and, uh, and, and how Hamas relates to that. It's related, I think, to a question that another listener had about Hamas's leaders abroad and all of that. I'm going to, I want to spend more time on the economics and particularly on Hamas's, their leaders abroad and, and these allegations that they're billionaires or whatever. I, I want to make sure I do that justice and, and not reflexively say something inaccurate. But I will point to the Hamas episode that talks a lot about the surge in unemployment in Gaza particularly after Hamas took power, but but certainly predating that. And this is an area where I think there are, are many, many causes to it, but the, obviously the blockade from Israel plays a huge part. I think the the response of Western governments in Israel also in you know saying that like they won't basically send aid to a terrorist organization dedicated to their destruction. So they basically pulled a lot of aid from the territories when Hamas took over. Um, that I think played a huge part. I also think Hamas's own corruption, you know, we quoted a lot of studies and, and individuals on the ground during the Hamas episode about that. You talking about like that is Hamas's both corruption and I would say lack of governmental competence also played a huge part as well. And then I would say like, you know, what, you know, what Yoni pointed out around the education system, I'm sure doesn't help. Like if you're taking this precious time that you have with your children and filling them with hate uh, and teaching them some of the things that Yoni pointed out, that's not going to help uh, make them, give them prospects for anything meaningful in the territories. Uh, and I think like, it's, you know, 
I think you put that all together and, and I think it's undoubtedly true that the economic reality for Palestinians, whether in the West Bank or in Gaza, is horrible. And this is why, you know, no matter what my views are around the validity of the state of Israel and its right to defend itself, I do think that the the answer here will have to include a change to the reality on the ground for Palestinians. And I don't I don't claim to know the answer. I, I've mentioned before that I had met Fayyad and I have talked about Fayyad, who is the, you know, the most competent Palestinian leader we've had. And I think we need to find more Fayyads. Uh, and I think uh, a combination of more Fayyads, um, Israel doing what it needs to do to pull back settlements and, and put a real two-state solution uh, on the table, and maybe a combination of those two things and the end of Hamas will lead to some kind of blue skies in the future. Obviously, there's there's a lot of storm clouds right now, but maybe that's the answer. But with that, okay, I'm sure I got a bunch of things wrong, and and I always count on you listeners to tell me. Um, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Give us those 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 top ratings. You know, we don't bother you at the moment with advertising, and uh, we don't charge for anything. So get out there and and give us a great review. Our voicemail is three two one two zero 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 five seven zero three two one two zero 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 five seven zero. We will be off next week, probably, unless it spirit moves me to put out something. But uh, go check out that newsletter. Uh, I will be recommending my favorite things of 2023. And in the comments, you could share yours. And I will probably follow up by sharing some of your ideas on the show. Uh, So thank you very much, everybody. Bye.